Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Zipcar. Earn $25 of free driving credit at joinzipcar.com slash weekend. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about E3, sort of pre-E3, if you will, and we're expecting to hear some news about consoles. We're calling it now the death of the traditional console. So this topic comes sort of on the heels of both, you know, the the PlayStation folks. Uh, sort of, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about what the PlayStation Neo will be all about. It's sort of like a PlayStation 4 Plus. And then the fine folks at Microsoft are planning Scorpion, which is like an, a supercharged Xbox One. So it seems like traditional consoles, just sort of putting out a console and there it is for five years. It doesn't seem like that's going to be a thing anymore from what we're hearing. Yeah, and I am a little nervous about the entire thing um, mm-hmm. because I think coming from like a PC background and everything like the thing because I'm, I'm always a little bit of an outsider looking in at the console world right and like one sure. of the things that seems to reliably attract people to consoles is that it's sort of fire and forget right like oh you have this console you can buy games for that console they all have that, that console name on it and that's done. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and that's a far cry from sort of the way things are on PC, where like if you're if you're looking at like newer, bigger budget stuff coming out, you you constantly need to sort of be judging uh, its recommended specs against against your own hardware, right? You have to be thinking about the next upgrade. You have to be thinking about when you're going to retire your current build and and, and stuff like that. It's I'm not sure it's necessarily that much more expensive overall. But it certainly feels uh, it's it certainly weighs a little more heavily on you. So consoles sort of like always promised you like freedom from that. Like you just yeah. you just have the thing, you put the game in, and it all just works. And I guess what scares me a little bit about this is just this seems like a good way to kind of kill what makes consoles work well, uh, and not necessarily see the gains uh, that you get with PC gaming. Right? Uh, I mean, like look at. I mean, look at the trouble that Nintendo had launching the the, the Wii U, right? Yeah. Like saying, no, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a new it's a it's a new sort of Wii. Like the like they they never got over the confusion of people thinking that it was not that different from the Wii, right? Yeah, or it just had different games. Like it was the same console, but oh, it's special somehow. Yeah. Like it, they just never really kind of made that bridge that gap for consumers for the sort of you know, grandma who had a Wii for Wii bowling, you know, sort of crowd. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how you like that was that was that was a that was just a traditional like, you know, hardware switch. I don't know how you're going to handle a possible future where maybe not just once, maybe multiple times over the life cycle of quote unquote a console. The console will change. And what, you know, what spec console you have will matter. I don't know how you handle that because it's not something it is. It is a bit of consumer education that has never had to happen before. Yeah. And I'm a little concerned that 
they're trying it now. Yeah, I'm very concerned about that as well. I mean, it's, it, you know, if they said things, you know, Sony has said things like, oh, you can't have features that are Neo only, or you can't, you know, games have to be out on both platforms. So what does that mean for developers? Like developers must hate this first and foremost, because it's like, oh, you're going to have to develop for the, you know, base console. And already what that means is, you know, probably PS4 and Xbox One and also probably PC. You already have sort of three platforms you have to think about. And then also now you're going to have, you know, five platforms you have to think about more if you want it on a Nintendo console, more if you want, you know, different sort of PC specs. Like it's already bananas. So let's just add more to this. I don't know. It, it, it also bothers me, you know, sort of from a fundamental level of like, as that person who has always been a console gamer, I kind of hate having to think about it. Like, I like the idea that I can just put a game into my system. I don't need to worry about, you know, whatever version I have or, or whatever kind of bullshit. Like, I just want to play the game. And I am I am not a savvy person. Like, I'm, I'm only savvy in any of this by virtue of this being my job that I have to know these things. Otherwise... Um, you know, I, I just want to enjoy video games. Like if I were just a pure consumer at this point, which, you know, I kind of was for a little while, I was freelancing a little bit, but you know, not nearly as much obviously as I am now. And I only played like, you know, five or six big games a year and then a bunch of little games. Like I could not care less about the plot, you know, the console wars and this and that and the other thing. Like, I just want to play a fucking video game. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't want to go through all this stuff about, oh, well, you need to upgrade your console every two years or sort of whatever they're kind of thinking of doing with this. And Or man. or they make it, or they create a future where you don't have to upgrade your console. Like, hey, if you have a PlayStation 4, PlayStation 4 games will still run. They'll just run better on newer models. But how far do you take that, right? Like, yeah. I have an iPad too. And there's a lot of shit, like it was a hand-me-down, but there's a lot of stuff that, yes, it will technically run on an <laughs> iPad. And it would make me, like, if I wasn't aware that I was basically playing the stuff on an insanely outdated piece of technology, <laughs> um, it would really turn me off the entire thing, right? Because yeah. I'd be like, why is my iPad game so crappy? Because, well, I'm, I'm like six <laughs> iPads behind now at this point. <laughs> and I worry that, like, okay, so th- I can see this, like, th- okay, it's not that huge a problem in the first year, right? Like... I can see a moderate change in hardware specs and uh, a new rollout of, of different console editions. Like I don't necessarily see that being the big problem. What concerns me is what comes after, right? Like once you once you sort of once you sort of broken the seal yeah. <laughs> on hardware upgrades uh, in in the console realm, like how do you how do you control it? And how do you bring people along for that ride without eventually having to tell people like, oh, sorry, you've got the PlayStation 4 that sucks now. (laughs) Yeah, like, God, that's such a hard sell. And it's such a video games are already really expensive. It's already like a ridiculously expensive hobby that not not everybody who does this has a ton of money and has, you know, a ton of disposable income and all that and, and so on and so forth. Like. I'm just having a really hard time thinking about justifying a $400 to $600 purchase anything more than every five years, you know, like even, even just sort of on that level, I'm, 
I have issues. <laughs> I take umbrage with this yeah. entire thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I <laughs> yeah. don't know. See, you said like it's 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 an expensive hobby. And at the same time, I'm also like, yeah, but it's also one of the most ridiculously inflation resistant uh, hobbies around, right? Like that's that that's that's another part of the story to, yeah, to an extent. Yeah. I think is you're opening the door for more hardware that's going to allow for you know better looking, more advanced, more sophisticated games. Blah blah blah. Um, it's already becoming prohibitively expensive, prohibitively expensive to take advantage of yes. all that computing power. Uh, you've got. I mean, yes, there's no getting around that like games are a like consumer luxury item. Of course, but, yeah. But at the same time, like their thing that sold for like sixty dollars in 1998, right. and they're selling for sixty dollars or less uh, in in 2016, right? And so now you're going now you're basically like creating this principle of well, we can just keep pushing the hardware and keep it keep advancing it, uh, and you can use that power to do more and i feel like maybe this is truer of the triple a space but uh i you know maybe to an extent it's also affecting everybody uh the more power you have the more production resources you require to to genuinely take advantage of it unless you're doing some like crazy like totally physics driven thing right where like a system just needs a lot of power to run but like in terms of presentation production values like more power generally means you know, more person hours on on the line taking advantage of it. Yeah. And, and so like I just I, I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I I don't know, man, either. It's it's kinda oh God, it's kinda rough. And I know when I see, you know, I see people making the parallel uh to something like uh, Nintendo, right? When when they make their you know, there's 42 different, I'm making up a number, versions of Game Boy, right? There was, you know, regular Game Boy, and there was Game Boy Pocket, there was Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, and then, of course, now we're in the DS line, there was the DS, the DS Slim, the 3DS. But you're describing why I don't have a DS. No, I know, exactly. And it's and it's like, I <laughs> I have a DS and I have an original 3DS and I've refused to get the new 3DS, whatever they called it. I think they actually just called it the new 3DS. This is the thing. Like, I have wanted to get a DS for ages, right? But every time I'm like, okay, which one should I get? Yeah. It's like the gates of hell open up before my eyes. And it's like, awful. all there is is the sound of like shrieking and... <laughs> Pokemon and dying. Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah, yeah something like that. <laughs> Final yeah. Fantasy Tactics. Exactly, exactly. Like, there are so many truly great games on the 3DS. And, and you know, on the 3DS before that. And the Game Boy before that. And, you know, like, Nintendo has gotten away with this because they target children so so aggressively. And, like, you know, the whole idea of, like, oh, you can give your old Game Boy to your little sister, your little brother, and get the new one. And they get away with this because it's it's slight it's not inexpensive by any means, but it is less expensive than a, a home console. And I really think they've kind of I don't know, sort of paved the way for this shitty and terrible model <laughs> with uh, you know, with with home consoles. And we don't know what the hell is gonna go on with their next console. You know, we know the Nintendo NX is happening. You know, we know we're probably gonna have more details on that soon, whenever soon means. Um, but 
Yeah, it, it feels to me like this is like an even worse version of the of what's what happened with the 3DS. Like the new 3DS had, you know, an additional C-stick basically for camera controls. And, you know, games pretty much all work on both, but they'll work a lot better on the new 3DS. And, you know, there certainly are a few games that only work on sort of the newer console. And I feel like it's it's kind of a slippery slope from there to just being like, well, now you have the shitty 3DS. You don't have anything that will work with good games anymore. Sorry. Too just, bad you bought that, you know, a month before the new thing came out. I mean, the thing is, like, this seems like a... Like, if this takes, it's probably the model that everyone's going to adopt for most hardware revision, like, for more, most hardware changes regarding consoles, right? Like, yeah. it might mean that with the except like with with exceptions that are very few and far between we will never see another rollout of like a PlayStation or an Xbox like we did with this this most recent yeah, yeah. uh iteration of those of those console platforms um which i totally understand why Microsoft in particular would like to get off that merry-go-round, right? Sure. Like if they could have, if they could have just said like, here's an upgraded 360 fuckers, buy it. Yep. I think, I think they would have <laughs> because they've got like, cause the moment you had to, you, the moment you had to sort of psychologically like ask people like, okay, you are leaping from one con, the console you've known for seven years to this new thing people start thinking about it as this new thing and they start weighing their options again, right? And if Microsoft could have just <laughs> used that brand loyalty they had and just been like, hey, it's the Xbox 361. You'll love yep. it. And <laughs> I think if they go back, they, I think, if, I think if, if Microsoft could go back, they would, have, they would, they would take this by, back in time and do this with the 360. Now everyone's just, everyone's just hit that point where it's like, we don't want to run the risk of having a console launch fall flat again. We just want you in our ecosystem and we'll sell you the new thing whenever you're ready for it, but we never want to lose you as an Xbox or a PlayStation consumer. Yes. And I, and I particularly think they would want to roll back before the time where they banked everything on the connect being the coolest thing ever I mean, that was their biggest thing at launch for the Xbox One was like connect right in the box, connect in, you know, new and improved connect. How great this is. The whole interface is designed around the connect. And now it's just sort of like, ooh, but it's so, right. But I, I actually find that kind of sad, too. Right. Because like, yeah. I actually think. For all that they got crushed for not being clear about what you could do with like game trading and like lending with your, with your new Xbox Um, for all that. I sort of feel like Microsoft were at least trying to think of like, they were trying to build a version of the future with the Xbox one a little bit. It might've been a silly version, you know, like you can get cable TV through your Xbox, but you'll still need a cable box, like all that <laughs> stuff. But, but there yeah. was at least an idea there, like this very silly, like kind of endearing star Trekky vision yeah. of like what hanging out in your living room would look like with this new generation of hardware, what it could look like in the future. Uh, and you know, here's the, here's the other funny thing I'll say, I'll say too. Um, in terms of like, uh, like being generous with like game licenses and such, like like user licenses, yeah. Uh, Microsoft's got it all over Sony. Um, yeah. I I so I, I have housemates now, and 
uh, they have an Xbox One. And I created an I, I logged into my account there. And on their Xbox One, I had full access to all the games in their library. Oh, Because nice. we share we share a console. I don't own Jack in Xbox, but I could <laughs> download all of it because it was on their accounts. And I could just download it and play it if I wanted to. Uh, whereas the PlayStation, man, if you're not in the right user account, Oof. you can't do shit. Forget it, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, it's one of those things where, like, I, I feel like... Everyone thought that that Microsoft just wanted like, and they did want to sort of control the Xbox a little bit more, control what the users could do with it a little bit more. But part of that was also a lot of convenience, right? That was going to be the trade off you're going to. That was going to be the trade you were going to make. Yeah. And I kind of like looking at the two consoles. Like I love the PlayStation Four. It's 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 very nice. Um, but. I do kind of wonder what the Xbox One would have been look like if they hadn't been forced to roll back so many things and if they hadn't sort of been forced to acknowledge that they were never going to do anything successful with the with the Kinect and yeah. had to abandon it. Yeah. And no, I'm I'm with you. I I actually liked the idea of the Kinect. I liked that goofy voice command stuff. I thought it was fun when it worked. Um, and you know, I was a huge, huge Dance Central fan. So I, I had a lot of reasons to like it. I just, I am a little sad that they tried, they, they swung for the fences, you know, they really tried, they sure tried. They didn't quite succeed maybe, but, but they did something with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, when, when you sort of like look at this, look at this sort of future that's, that's under construction with the, uh, with the consoles, like, I mean, how do you think? How do you think it's? How do you think it's going to work over time? Like, um, are they just going to start like grandfathering out older older hardware platforms? Like, are we just going to get? Is it going to be? Is it going to be like PC gaming, where you sort of have to compare which PlayStation or Xbox you have to the the, the to this little sticker on the box? Yeah, uh, to see if you can play it. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be how it works. You know, they'll support the maybe the sort of most recent version and maybe 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 the one before that and then kind of, you know, in small print say this is not compatible with PlayStation 4. You know, PlayStation 4 vanilla. However, they're going to have to rename, you know, what the original <laughs> release of PlayStation 4 was, like Neo and Barracuda and Shark. It'll work with these, but not with whatever, you know, bland PlayStation 4. I think they will. I mean, that's the part that kind of sucks about this is that it's it's just going to be another thing you have to keep up with and another thing to sort of keep on your mind as you do the the 10,000 things you need to do every day and keep up with, like, your own actual PC hardware and keep up with, you know, your phone and whatever version of your phone that you have and, and everything else with that. I don't know. This I, I have to admit, like, I probably sound incredibly cynical about all of this, but I really, I really don't like the tech aspect of being uh, a gamer, um, quote unquote. Like I really, it bothers me that I have to keep up with all these things and not just kind of have something. My ideal vision of the world is there's only one platform and it's not even a PC. It's just sort of like a little, I don't know, some sort of display that you can just throw up on a wall somewhere. <laughs> you can just interact with everything through that because I dislike having to buy new gadgets all the time. It's not fun for me anymore. It was when I was young, but now that I'm an old fart and I'm I'm cranky, I don't like having to look at all the numbers all the time. 
I can't be the only one either. I, I truly don't think that I am. No. And, you know, the other th- thing I found myself wondering a little bit, and this is a little more informed by my, by my PC bias, I guess let's call it. <laughs> sure. Um, so with, with the PC, you make the trade-off that you're going to have to refresh your hardware more often than your friends on console. Uh, I probably went through two, three different PC builds uh, over the course of the lifetime of the last consoles, right? Mm. Uh, I'm about to be on my second, um, my no, sorry, my first uh, new build of, of this era. So each time that happened, that was probably $600, maybe $500. <sighs> Yeah. Um, so it's you know, not that, cheap. It adds yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the, the 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 in exchange for that, I got a thing that could do a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. and the games are really cheap. Yeah. Because that marketplace, like you can get a a fresh new game for if you're willing to wait for sales uh, for a song, you know, for for nothing. You know, console games don't seem to discount like that. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a long time for a new copy to sort of hit the twenty twenty five point. And even then it's still that's still like, you know, twice as much as, as it would be going for uh in PC. terms of like PC depreciation, which again probably sucks for developers a little bit. Yeah. But is good for you as someone who wants to play games on the PC. So that's that's the bargain that you know that the PC always offered, right? Well, you're gonna have to spend a little more on hardware. Uh, but back catalog stuff is is ridiculously cheap, and it'll be awesome. So you, you save money. You may you may end up saving money on games over the, over the course of, of the lifetime of a build. Yeah. Now, I see potential for a worst of both worlds situation where it's like, <laughs> sure. all right, time to ante up. It's been three years since you bought a PlayStation, uh, so we're gonna need another four hundred dollars from you, and that's gonna let you play a bunch of sixty dollar games again, and that seems like you're breaking that seems like you're breaking the deal yeah you're breaking the deal and and it's also worth saying that if you beef up your pc you can also do other things on it that that power you know goes a long way towards that are not even just video games like i i have to have a pretty beefy you know setup to do all the video editing that i do and motion graphics and so on and so forth but like you can have your one and done, right? You can buy a new machine or, you know, build a new machine. And then it's like, oh, this is going to be awesome for After Effects and Premiere and everything yep. else that I need it for. Uh, so it feels like you you also have kind of like a professional excuse. Maybe this is this just tells you more about myself and how I, I need no, to have excuses to do things, right? But, fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, it, it, it benefits you to have a powerful PC. It benefits you in a lot of ways that are not just for fun. Um, so... Yeah, it just feels like, man, it's just such a, maybe, the, yeah, maybe I'm just like miserly in my old age, but I, I I dislike the idea of having to shell out so much money all the time. And I don't even, you know, frankly, I'm coming from a very, very lucky position where, you know, I will have help buying these things because this is for my job. It's not like I have yeah. to shell out all the time for games. Like I get game code as part of my job. Like, this is me complaining, <laughs> and and so I can only imagine how an average consumer feels about all of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, let me ask you: is, is so we've been we've been super down on this. What's <laughs> what, what's the upshot, right? What what do you what do you see as gaining uh, from from this from not being locked to a spec uh, for for overtime? 
I mean, what I'm hoping for is that it allows developers to do more creative things, not just to make things look super nice, but hey, you can have this insane, wonderful, amazing physics simulation, or you can have, you know, No Man's Sky scale worlds in your game just in as as sort of like a normal feature, that sort of thing. Like that kind of power hopefully means that some really smart, really creative people can do things that you just can't do on current platforms. Like, yeah, there's there's definitely possibility. So yes, let's let's be positive. <laughs> That's a good idea. Let's do No Man's Sky, but Witcher 3. How does that how does that sound? It sounds pretty good, huh? <laughs> sounds it sounds real good. Uh, yeah, I mean I, I think like for me, it's by the end of my PlayStation 3's life. I, I feel like I had to retire my P, my PlayStation Three before I was necessarily done with it. Yeah, right. Like yes. I like you only have so much room on your uh, you know on your uh, con on your, on your sort of you know entertainment stand, your bookshelf, whatever. You only have so much space. And I was like, there was there was the day when it was like, okay, PlayStation Four is in. Sorry, got to unhook the PS Three. Got to got to put it in a corner somewhere. And that means that like a lot of games for PS Three kind of end up going away. Right. You can always yeah. bring it back out, but chances are you won't very often. Yeah. And the other thing is, when you do, you'll be reminded of what a crappy experience it's become, right? <laughs> like, it's become slow, like, everything takes ages to load. Uh, I guess one thing that appeals to me about this is, like, it's a way to sort of continue playing on, on the platform you prefer without having to watch that thing slide inexorably into obsolescence, right? Yeah. And that actually could be pretty cool, right? Because then if I could like, you know, like remember the wailing and gnashing of teeth every time that the backwards compatibility uh, discussion came up, right? Oh, and yes. there's always those moments where it's like, sorry, here's a list of games we're going to make backwards compatible. Uh, the rest, you're out of luck. Or you can rebuy them as HD remakes later, uh, which may or may not be the same thing. But... If this sort of breaks that cycle as well, I could see that being a very good thing, right? If you could just be like, all right, well, I'm done with Bloodborne. Oh, I'll bet Demon Souls will look freaking awesome on my PlayStation 3.99 or something like that. <laughs> that would be yeah. really cool. Um, so I guess like I can I can sort of see the upshot there as well, right? If you if you start seeing some of the other good things with with the PC, like greater backwards compatibility, uh, the fact that your console can like you can be on the same console, but eventually pay to make it more convenient and faster and a little more capable. That's that's not a bad thing. Um, I just I just wonder how many people are going to see it as an exciting option for them. You know, after they've had a console for a few years, versus how many people are going to feel it's burdensome. Yeah, I, I think you absolutely nailed it right there. I I also was liking the uh, the sort of analogy of like instead of letting your trusty you know, your friend, your, your friend and companion dog die, you know, ungrace, uh, age ungracefully and die. You can just sort of replace it with like a cyborg body, but it's exactly. still the same, still the same soul of your old pal. So it's like, it's like where the red fern grows, <laughs> yes. except the red fern eventually turns into a tree bearing the fruit of games on its branches. <laughs> I like that. That's a very nice way of looking at it. I like that. Awesome. Uh, so I think that's probably a good place to uh, to move on from. Uh, but for, before we go into our weekend correspondence, let's have a word from our sponsor. 
Rob, I have it figured out. I know how I'm gonna take my puppy to the beach. Okay, so first I take three trains, each crowded to the point mm -hmm. of crushing injury. Uh, then I'll transfer to a bus that might work that day. And if I'm lucky, my dog won't even pee on anyone, or worse. What, what else might your dog do to someone on the train? I was thinking more poo, uh, okay. but he could also throw up. Uh, he okay. does both of those things in excess sometimes. Right, but okay, but he's not like going to make sweet love to someone's leg. I mean, he might. He might. My he dog could. is a little out of control. A little I, either bit. way, it, it doesn't, that doesn't sound like the best situation. I mean, like, couldn't you just drive to the beach? I don't have a car here in good old New York City. Well, you could just take a zip car. They're convenient, easy to find and use, and flexible. You don't even need to talk to any upselling rental dealers. Well, that sounds pretty great. Yeah, just go to joinzipcar.com slash weekend, and you'll get $25 of free driving credit, and you can have a car whenever you need one without any of the hassle. I can take my dog to the beach all summer long with no doggy diapers. That's joinzipcar.com slash weekend for $25 of free driving credit. So our first email comes in from Adam. Adam writes, Hi, Weekends. I was listening to the May 13th episode when Rob mentioned Diablo 3 and how free respects remove important choices from character decision-making process. This got me thinking, what is the identity of character in Diablo 3? In games like FTL, it's argued that the personnel on the ship are unimportant and replaceable, and that the true player avatar is the spacecraft itself. Much like the individual components of the ship of Theseus, the crew can all die and be replaced, but if the spacecraft blows up or becomes unstaffed, the game is over. In Diablo 3, a player's playstyle is determined by the gear that they wear, especially when they give, you so, they give you so much flexibility in what your abilities actually do. Because Paragon XP, Gold, Vendor levels, and gear all persist outside of my wizard itself, the wizard doesn't really matter. So what I'm asking is, is the character I play in Diablo 3 the magic man or smash lady that I put less than a minute into customizing, or the multiple hours of accumulated effort that I put into kidding them out. Wow, I love this. <laughs> I love this very philosophical way of, of looking at this. I, I forget which, um, I was a philosophy major. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but This is uh, my shocked face. Yeah, really, <laughs> truly shocked. I, I chose the most useful of majors. I was, I was a classics major, so I, oh, I, have nice. no, I, I can't throw any stones. High fives across. I mean, I was technically actually a, a double major. I also majored in psychology, so like double useless. But yeah. anyway, haha, just a little self-deprecating humor there. What does that say about me? I really like this, this idea of like, okay, wh where is your identity? Is the identity in the memory of, of like putting together this character, having these experiences as this character, putting all this time and effort in, or is it this sort of like the skin that you chose? It's really, I don't think there is an answer, quote unquote, but it is an, a fascinating question. And it's, um, God, I, I'm, the name is escaping me, but the, the whole idea of a thing can only be that thing, if it has some way of, of sort of keeping its form, that's the only actual way of identifying something as, as the true self. I mean, our, our cells all replace themselves every seven years and we're still the same people. Right. So yeah, it's a really, I think cool you question. need to get a refund on that philosophy. Degree. I think just, maybe just I should, saying. I think maybe I sh I spent a little too much of my education and it wasn't really worth that. <laughs> yeah. There were, um, 
I could recognize like fragments of like a half dozen different like philosophical analogies and yeah. like paradoxes, conundrums. There are a few uh, things in there. in there. Uh yeah, I mean this is something I guess I'm I'm probably like okay, from my perspective as sort of a casual player, right? I guess like what Adam's calling me on, you, you know, probably right. In Diablo 2, without any investment at all, you felt like you were making important choices about your character, right? You you pushed that button on the tree, and that's what your character could do. And all of the other options were gone, right? Uh, and the gear mattered as well, but sort of at every step, and especially if you were just playing it once, it felt like the character you were playing was a collection of those choices that you'd made each time the character leveled up. And yeah, in Diablo 3, because I was playing it, like, Diablo 3, I play that the same way I play Diablo 2, right? Like, I showed up when it came out, I played a lot, and I was kind of done with it. And one reason I was kind of done with it is because I just lost interest, because I could respec at any time. So for me, it felt like the character didn't matter. But yeah, what, what has sustained high-level play is that whole idea that to really get the character you want requires all this investment... And effort, and God help us even study uh, to to figure out like where to get the stuff you want and need, um, and and that the sort of the the itemization that takes ages to 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 acquire, that's really the character you built, and the class is just you know it's it, that's that's really just de- determines the set of like abilities your character has, um, but you can sort of see the same thing in um, Destiny as well. Right, sure. where yeah. I think the classes are kind of there, there's the three main classes, and then there's all the subclasses, right? But but I I feel like it was never a terribly exciting RPG from that perspective. Like it takes so long to like unlock class abilities, and and a lot of them are you know just kind of passives, and ultimately you're just playing a shooter where a lot of characters are using similar weapons broadly a lot of the game feels uh feels can feel the same but what you really play for after a point is your gear and what the gear said like your chosen gear says about your play style uh so yeah i totally i guess i i tend to underrate that right because my because my initial take when i describe a game like that like when i describe destiny is like yeah it's kind of a crappy rpg well <laughs> No, it's just the just it's just the progression and the and and the the spec the the sort of uh, min maxing that I expect to take place just happens elsewhere and it looks different than I'm than I'm used to seeing it from sort of my classic RPG days. Sure, and and I feel like that's a lot of uh, people's criticisms about the sort of Bethesda Fallout games as well, right? That you, you feel less like a character, and you're just kind of making binary decisions with the actual dialogue choices, and more like a set of stats. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly I don't know because I haven't played much of them. I've sort of watched my girlfriend play, you know, two hundred hours of Fallout Four, but it, it feels like a a very I don't know. Feels like that's valid on both ends. Anyway, no more of this bad philosophy from me. Um, <laughs> I'll go on. Right. Our next email uh, comes from Justin. Hello, Weekenders. I think the biggest point of contention and criticism is that people hold it as dogma. I rarely hear counterarguments, rebuttals, or criticism on critics by other critics. 
Few people do second opinions, and fewer still reflect on their old work, possibly admitting they ultimately enjoyed a game they reviewed poorly or a game they reviewed well ended up bad in hindsight. And I love podcasts for encouraging this kind of open discussion that would never make a front page article. Knowing that people aren't infallible, how do we discuss a critic's work on its own merit without devolving into ethics and gaming journalism internet vitriol? (laughs) Or should one's opinion, the subjective view informed by personal experience, be untouchable? Tom Chick says that a review is a timestamp for a specific moment. Therefore, refuting something that can't be changed is ultimately pointless. (laughs) Well, I think the reason why you don't see a whole lot of uh, criticism on critics from critics is that uh, we're all kind of in the same boat together. And it it feels unprofessional to be like, well... A lot of glass houses. Yeah, quite a few. Uh, Well, that Tom Chick character, he did X, Y, and Z. Like, it just... It feels really crappy and wrong to, <laughs> you know, to badmouth someone. That doesn't mean, you know, you can't give constructive criticism, obviously. Uh, but, yeah, that feels like kind of douchey and wrong to kind of, you know, throw it out there. Um, but it, it is it is absolutely worth uh, discussing. And certainly the product that is a podcast is very different from the product that is a review. Like, we can obviously be a little bit more open and honest. We have a lot more words here. It's a more reflective kind of uh, space. And, you know, we've, we've done this ourselves on this podcast. I, I think I mentioned that uh, I really enjoyed... Uh, a game after, sort of after I reviewed it and I gave it, you know, five, mainly because I had issues with the controls, but, you know, kind of going back to it later, I, I sort of really enjoyed it more. And that was Dust Force. Um, really pretty sort of meditative and maybe a little too hard, but but still worth playing uh, platformer, sort of score attack platformer. Uh, so, yeah, I, I also appreciate that there's sort of different ways for us to talk about games and different places for us to do those things. And, um yeah, I don't know. It's it's it, it is also really hard because we've talked about this before as well, but like the the way games are reviewed is not necessarily the most natural process. So we're, we're always going to have second thoughts and not necessarily um, you know, contradicting ourselves, but the way you experience something in a week is different from the way you think back on that week later on, sort of inevitably. So I don't know what the solution to that is other than just listen to a lot of podcasts. This is where we can all kind of let yeah. our hair down and talk a little more. <laughs> well, that's, that's the other thing is like there's not a great place for critical discussion because yeah. a lot of us like – so a lot of us sort of stake our territory. We, we make our claims in the context of reviews. Yeah. And I think one reason that – a review is not necessarily a critique, right? Like, this is why it's a timestamp for a specific moment. Uh, a lot of times a review is maybe a first or second or even third reaction, if you have the time, to a thing. But you, but it, it still represents a moment maybe before you've really, like, been interrogated and figured out exactly what you think and why uh, of a game. And... Like I, I think for for most for most games, like your, your views on it will continue to change and evolve uh, for for ages, right? And and so the you know the the issue if if someone says like, well, you know, your view is completely wrong on this, uh, and it was you know three years ago or or something, I, I think a lot of times the reviewer is perfectly you know entitled to say, well, yeah, but like views views change, they yeah. they they evolve, uh, but. There's no real place to have those conversations because, uh, well, outside of outside of podcasts, B- 
because nobody is like we're we're all sort of we're all sort of on that on that treadmill and yeah. we we all need to be sort of moving on to the new thing and there isn't a huge audience and therefore not a huge incentive to dis- like to do serious like second takes on a thing right like um perfect example is right like for the last 2 months i have been trying to get a podcast together around um Endless Legend, which is a fantasy forex strategy game uh, for three moves ahead. I thought it'd be fun to revisit a game that we all really enjoyed two years ago. It's had yeah. a whole bunch of expansions. I was like, we'll just have a conversation about it. We all really <laughs> enjoyed it. It's not going to be that hard. Two months later, I still can't find a full panel because everyone <laughs> has moved on. Like everyone has, everyone is sort of busy with the current new thing. Yeah. And so you're not going to get... You know, those those sort of incisive, like, here's here's what I got wrong about, uh, you know, the darkness, right? Or, or, yeah. or anything like that. Uh, you're, or, or you're not going to get, like, a close critical reading of Tom Chick's reviews of 4X strategy games. And sort of a, sort of a, a insightful and in-depth look at, like, what Tom likes or dislikes or what he tends to value in, in 4X games. Because, one, like, everyone's busy with the new stuff. And, two, there's probably not a huge audience for that stuff. So these conversations are just, you know, they happen, they happen over drinks and they happen on podcasts. But <laughs> uh, at, professionally, there's, there's just not really an outlet for it. And so I think the, you know, so the rule remains, like... You don't, you don't get too pointed with other critics because we're all kind of in the same boat, and we're all, you know, we're we're all sort of staking these momentary claims uh, while we work out what we really think. We're all very fallible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, and it's it sucks. Like I just had a Hearts of Iron Four review go up, and like in the three days between when I filed it and when it went up, I started to think like, shit, I might have underscored that. I really enjoy. I maybe enjoy this game more than I thought I did. I don't know, <laughs> but it's it's just the nature of it's the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. And it was it was a vivid illustration of the moment in time, right? Like I I filed it, and it went through some revisions, and then it sort of went into limbo, and you you don't touch stuff after it's sort of locked down. Yeah. Um. And I, I was sort of thinking like, if they don't publish it soon, I might wonder if I want to adjust the score upwards a little. I don't know. And I like, and I, I I'm happy with the score I gave it, but it's one of those things where I'm continuing to play it, and I'm still not sure whether my issues with it, whether they're still like whether or not they're, maybe they're more serious than I think yet, or whether or not they you know they're less serious. But in in those three days, like my my feelings were changing constantly. Yeah, and I, and I frankly I think it's it's for me, more often the other direction that I think maybe I overscored something or I, I liked something too much and I got too excited about it. And then, you know, if I don't remember it in six months, oh, that's yeah. probably a good indication that I really shouldn't have given something, a, you know, whatever I gave it, you know, basically. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be kind of away from scores now that I get to run my own reviews department and we have a yes or no system, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, but there are still times I'm like, was I too easy on this? Mm-hmm. I might have been. Um, but I certainly have had times where I've been, I felt too hard on something as well and actually remember it very fondly years later. And I think, wow, why am I so bad at this? But that's, you know, that's what we all do. We're all kind of fallible. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all, et cetera, et cetera. So our next email comes from Anton. Anton writes, hey, weekenders. 
I've really enjoyed listening to yourselves, everyone else enjoying the new Doom. But as an oldie, I feel sad at how much people are missing from this game. And I hate to be accused of fansplaining. I think the new Doom is far closer to the original than people give it credit for. Rob's assertion that Doom was scary is on point, but I don't think this has been removed. You can still clear an arena and hear monsters grumbling around somewhere just around the corner, something that is completely reminiscent of the original games. The game hits so many notes of the original, not just figuratively, but literally. The soundtrack is being largely overlooked, but it harks back to the original games with certain themes showing themselves at critical points in the game. There are parts of the architecture that are throwbacks to the original games as well. The entire game is a giant love letter to players of the original games, and so much of it seems like that is being missed. If you've enjoyed this revision, I encourage you to pick up the original games and check out Brutal Doom, a mod for the original game, which is largely making the game more modern and is remarkably similar to Doom 2016. I feel like I can't really add much to that other than to say that all seems super rad as someone who didn't really play much of those originals. And just the fact that this game was clearly made with so much love and reverence to that property just makes me kind of like it even a little bit more to hear this from, you know, a fan of the older games that feels like, hey, they really got it, even if it's more in spirit than in sort of uh, the nitty gritty mechanics. That's that's awesome. Just makes me love that doom even a little bit more. I, I mean, I, I just don't buy it is the thing though. Like, I, like I get it, but I guess I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that there's echoes. I mean, okay. So there's like, like the architecture point, right? Like Mm. I kind of wonder about that, right? Like I, I, like, you know, Anton, like you're welcome to send in like screenshot comparisons or something to convince me, but like, like when I say when I hear like well the architecture the there's echoes of the architecture uh, in, in in the new game that the in there's echoes of the old game's architecture in the new game mm-hmm. I think well yeah because it's all gothic demon shit like you know, it's, <laughs> like I just I don't necessarily see those homages that much um, and I also I also just don't think this game is scary uh, I, I like. And you, yes, yeah, so you can. Okay, so you can hear you can hear monsters in the background and such. But but ultimately, like this is this is a game where like the doors are going to slam shut and then you're going to murder the crap out of everyone. <laughs> and I feel like the original Doom maybe played with suspense a little bit more than the current one. Um, so I don't know. I just, I just don't necessarily, the soundtrack, I have no idea. Like it's been so long. I only really remember one track from doom and I haven't really heard an echo of it in, in the new, in the new game. Uh, but the, the soundtrack, I, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't really noticed like, um, thematic, uh, consistency or homages, uh, between the two games, but I don't know. I still, I, I still feel pretty, pretty comfortable with where, where we came down on it, where, which is like. It, it harkens to the spirit of old doom, but yeah. I just, I like Anton, I need, I need further evidence. People, <laughs> if, if, if someone out is, so, if someone is out there is like, no, here are all the things you've missed that about that this game is like consciously evoking about the old doom. I am open to correction on this, but for the moment, I just, I still feel like it's, it's its own thing. Well, then I have to ask you, do you like it better than you liked the original Doom when you were ten? Like, no. is this God, no. okay? Okay, no. gotcha. original Doom. I mean, original Doom when I was ten was like 
it's one of those games that like <laughs> like changed like that's when I became a huge PC gamer. Right? Sure, sure. Um, so it, you just, I just can't, I can't even compare the, the two experiences. I will say, like of late, I haven't felt as much urge to continue playing Doom. I see. Uh, I returned to Mars and uh, did a level that was like ninety percent jumping puzzle, and I haven't played it <laughs> since. Uh, sure. So, like, and that just didn't happen with old Doom, where I think I, I, I must have played those games just a whole bunch, uh, you know, and. Yeah, there's just no comparison between the two. You know, who I was, where I am in time, what the game means for for the for the genre, totally different situations. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Our next email uh comes from John Rennish. John writes, Hello, R and D. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I like that That's a good. lot. Yeah. yeah. We should have shirts made. Yeah, we should. Um all right. Much of games media follows the enthusiast view of the cult of the new. Ooh. When The Witcher 3 was mentioned on the May 27th podcast, well, John, it wasn't just the May 27th podcast. (laughs) I don't think we've done one without mentioning Witcher 3. No, one episode. Every day is Witcher 3 day on (laughs) Idol Weekend. When, When The Witcher 3 was mentioned on the May 27th episode for its upcoming DLC, it brought to mind many other games that rarely get noticed for quality post release support. Are there other games or studios that deserve a best-supported game mention that jump to mind? Along those lines, not too long ago, Sega added mod support to its old 8- and 16-bit console games on Steam. That alone was a rather unexpected decision, but even more so was the repackaging of old cheats for these games as chill edition mods. That's awesome. As previously mentioned, Alien Isolation had its own chill edition that (laughs) removed the alien. But do either of you have a game that you enjoy a chill edition for? For the first question, the best supported game, um, I feel like the Mass Effect games had some pretty mm. awesome DLC, like really good DLC. Like Mass Effect 2, the, the um, was it Shadow Keeper? Shadow Broker. Shadow Broker, yeah. The Shadow Broker DLC for that was maybe my favorite part of that game. It was Awesome. It was, you know, the Liara storyline that kind of moved everything forward, and that was rad. The Citadel DLC for Mass Effect 3 was really awesome. Not saying every single, you know, bit of DLC for those games was, like, the greatest thing, but some of them were kind of the coolest parts of those games. So I guess that'd be my vote. And for a chill edition, I would actually love a chill edition of the Dark Souls games. I actually really am interested in the lore and the weird worlds and the bizarre creatures. Like if there were, if the creatures were still there, but they all fought themselves and you you know, you were just invisible. (laughs) Yeah. You could talk to them. You could hang out with them. You could, or they could just kill themselves and you know, you could just pick up all their stuff. That'd be fine. Cause I I really love what's that. Sorry. No, sorry. It it is an amazing world. Like that you can never go sightseeing in. Yeah, like, I guess you can once you kill everything, and that's fine, but sometimes in that game, by the time you kill everything, you don't want to be in the damn thing anymore. I I would love just, like, a sightseeing tour. Just, like, look at these beautiful, the beautiful world of Lothric. Like, take a look at these dead dragons and these dead, you know, dead everything, I guess, and these proud, sad creatures. Like, that would be really cool, and I would really enjoy that. So yeah, those are my votes. Uh, for me, a chill edition game would be Mirror's Edge, the original one. Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically, what I want is like a Mirror's Edge without the bullshit, annoying like combat sequences, right? Sure. Like, all those times, like that, that game, like 
I'm sure it's necessary. I don't. I don't necessarily want it to be like too chill, right? Sure, but, sure. Like, yeah. But at the same time, like what I would would have loved in that game was uh, something that made me feel like I was like in Run Lola Run or something, rather than constantly tripping me up with things that were like shooting me and killing me and blocking me, right? Low like, state version of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, but yeah. every time. It was like you have to run from point A to point B and then to C. And along the way, like security guards are gonna keep bursting through doors. Uh, there's gonna be a helicopter like shooting you. Like there's gonna be a bunch of places where if you're running there uh, for more than a second, you'll get shot to death. All that, all that garbage. Yeah. Um, just go straight to hell. Like just let me, just let me feel like an awesome, like an awesome runner. Right. <laughs> that would have been cool. Uh, so that's something I, I would have very much enjoyed. Uh, best supported games. Um, well, I guess for me, I would say like one of my all-time like favorite games that just kept expanding and getting more entertaining was uh, I thought Sins of a Solar Empire. Sure. Uh, that was that was a game that I was perfectly happy with out of the box, and then they kept releasing expansions, and then they released God, the last expansion they did for it. I can't even remember what it was called, but it split every faction into two different aspects of the same faction. Oh wow! And there were some unit changes, uh, so you had the same core units, but there were a few things that one one side could access, the other couldn't, and vice versa. And it gave you super ships along with some graphical upgrades. And so the final edition of Sins of the Solar Empire was like a completely different animal uh, than, than the earlier ones uh, and was just a much more glorious and like awesome looking sci-fi strategy game. Uh, I guess, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast who also listen to Three Moves Ahead and like, well, what about Paradox? <laughs> Paradox maybe put toes a line between best supported and over supported. Ah, yeah. Because uh, Paradox, I, I think they continue tweaking systems and adjusting games way, way along in their life cycle. And sometimes I feel like a sweet spot was hit and then passed. I see. And so I, I think, I, I think, like I, I'm sure from a business standpoint, it is absolutely the right thing they're doing. Like they know they've been doing this for a number of years. I am sure that. They know what they're doing, and this is what this is the most effective way to be Paradox Development Studio. But as someone who like really enjoyed the earlier editions of EU4, uh, sometimes I'm a little ambivalent that like the game that I played for the first year it existed is kind of gone in some hmm. ways, improved in some ways, deepened in some ways, but but also kind of unstreamlined. Uh, I think Paradox Games tend to, um, TJ Hafer actually said that later Crusader Kings 2 expansions aren't aren't so much expansions, uh, but professional mods. <laughs> sure. And I think that's a, that's a good example of like what happens when you never stop touching a game. Eventually you start like saying, well, I guess what I'd really like to do is just reconsider this entire thing. And you start conducting <laughs> surgery on a thing that, you know, took its original form for a reason. Makes a lot of sense to me. And I almost wonder, dovetailing into our next email, if something like a Dota or a League of Legends is 
could be considered an incredibly well-supported game given, you know, the communities that have sprung up around it, but I know nothing about them, which leads us to our final letter from Jeff Bartman. Jeff asks, why does everyone hate MOBAs? I've I've been playing League of Legends since just about its release, and it's still easily one of my favorite games. I consistently put in several hours a week, clicking away as fast as I can, determined to destroy the Nexus. But everyone I try to introduce this game to immediately is turned off by the idea of a MOBA. Even most of the video games press from all outlets poke fun at MOBAs like Dota and League, which is fine. I can laugh at myself. But you can tell they have no desire to even give them a try. And I ask, why? I can't think of any other genre that gets so much flack and that has people so extremely unwilling to even give it a try. I understand that not everyone likes to play competitive games, but as far as they go, I find the strategy, technical skill, and cooperative play to be the best among PvP games. And I understand that sometimes the communities can be toxic to new players, or it might seem there's too much going on to fully grok. But I still, I just find it fascinating how much ill contempt gamers have for the genre and wonder what you guys think about it. Anyways, keep up the great podcast. Cheers, Jeff Bartman. Oh, Jeff, we got we to gotta do something about your MOBA <laughs> persecution complex. <laughs> Like if there is okay, so there are there's a, yes, there's a ton of people who are sort of aggressively uninterested yeah. in MOBAs, but at the same time, boy, do I feel like maybe not as much now, but I feel like for the last couple of years, Dota in particular was like it was like it was like the other Dark Souls almost, right? Like <laughs> kind it was of yeah. over. It was like if you are serious about games. If you are if you are ludologically inclined, oh, ludologically inclined, <laughs> yes. Then you needed to play. You need to play Dota. You need to appreciate sort of its janky, weird brilliance. And <laughs> oh, you don't understand what's going on? Fuck you. Get good. <laughs> that, is, that is yeah. <laughs> that that is exactly the conversation that I was hearing about about Dota, and. So I think it's just one of those things where if you're on the outside of a MOBA, it's going to, you know, it's, it, it's, um, oh God, what what is it? It's confirmation bias, right? Sure. If you're not into MOBAs, it's going to seem like a bunch of people are obnoxiously into MOBAs and trying to ram them down your throat. If you're into MOBAs, it's going to sound like everyone's being a dick about MOBAs. Yeah. And I, like, I hear the same thing because like every... So not that long ago, I listened to the uh, Giant Bombcast's uh, year-end awards. Yes. Uh, which is a fascinating, like, um, I think the people who conduct uh, studies of, like, Supreme Court justice uh, strategy <laughs> uh, should should turn their attention to this thing. Because it's a I fascinating agree. document of, like, bargaining and, and how these lists are, are, lists are made. But every time I hear, like... Um, Brad. Yes. Yeah. Like just get just get shot down and crushed every time he tries to step up for a strategy game, right? Like everyone just like, eh. How about this indie platformer instead? I'm like, you sons of bitches, <laughs> you you <laughs> bastards. Uh, I, and, and which is funny because I would totally be on on the indie platformer side of that whole discussion. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. So but so I mean, I just I just think it's like. The thing that you're into, you're going to notice how many people are aggressively not into it. Yes. Uh, and it's going to be a little frustrating. I, I, I think MOBAs, most people in this line of work just don't have time for them. Uh, they, you know, any, any sort of like special, specialized genre that requires a lot of investment is going to lead a lot of like mainstream generalist critics and, and uh, writers 
out in the cold. And after a point, they're going to get sick of hearing about this stuff. And it will come across as like aggressive contempt. Um, but I don't think I don't think they are unloved by uh, by games people. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I now I do know of some some lovely individuals that I that I love with all my heart who are super super into mobas. And um, I can think of one person like like uh, Yannick Lejack who used to be at Kotaku, and he mm-hmm. now I believe works at Riot actually. Blizzard. Sorry, Blizzard. God. Oh, see, this is how much how good I am at every kind of. They all e-sport. have mobas. Yeah, they all have mobas. See, one of those moba companies that makes those colorful things. Um, he kind of used to get a lot of flack for being like, "Hey, I'm gonna go play Dota," and everybody would be kind of like, mm, "Cool," or League, or whatever. You know, this is how good I am. Anyway, you know, certainly there's well, there is you're a little actually bit proving of that. Just point, Danielle. <laughs> See what I mean? I'm, that's the thing. I'm trying to agree with Jeff. I'm trying to agree with him that there is some, some you level of this. Are into. There's some level of this going on. Look, it's all nerd shit to Danielle. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeff. Jeff, I'm sorry. This is so this this is the this is the generational divide. Like our mothers called all games Nintendos. Yep. And you are just going to call, like, every game a MOBA. Like, he's <laughs> all plays in the League of Legends. You like Legends. that MOBA shit? Yeah, it is. He's playing Overwatch. Oh, you playing some LOL? You, you like your MOBA? Is that your MOBA watch? That's good. But actually, yeah. but actually non-trivial thing. Maybe the conversation has changed because a lot of game journalists who are really into MOBAs were drained out into video game companies. Entirely possible. Not even lying. Entirely possible. I will. I will share this. I watched my girlfriend go through her MOBA phase. I watched her do the eighty-hour. You know, the sort of eighty hours required to understand half of what happens in Dota. Basically, you know, I watched her do that and really enjoyed it, and really, you know, had a good time with it, and enjoyed the experience, and was like, okay, that's all I can give to this uh, because I need to do a million other things. But that is really cool and really interesting. I have the beginnings of an interest in sort of what happens in a MOBA, just as somebody who really likes sports, who who really likes, mm-hmm. you know, like the strategy behind basketball and football. Again, not a not on any level an expert in these things, just somebody who is interested in those things. I like that it seems to be a sport with a lot of complexity going on. That's really cool. That's really interesting. Uh, but for me, I've always been one of the poorest strategic thinkers uh, that I know. I just, uh, the, you know, it's funny to say three moves ahead with you here, but I cannot think three moves ahead. I'm not very good at setting those things up. One of the reasons I like boxing so much is because it's just sort of my limbs that need to be involved in that decision-making process, and I don't need to think about it. I just sort of intuit where I need to move and what I need to do uh, instead of thinking about it. So I am poorly equipped psychologically to actually execute on that level. And it's that's the main reason I don't really play many strategy games either, even though I, I have an interest and sort of an inkling of desire to play a lot of these games because I actually do think what's going on there is is fascinating and I want to understand it better. But it's not really where my natural inclination is. So if I ever disparage that MOBA shit, uh, that's, it's because I'm jealous of people who can um, execute strategy on a level beyond uh, where do my feet need to go, where does my head need to go, and where do my fists need to go. (laughs) Oh, that was our last email. Well, awesome. I think it's time for us to move on to our weekend projects after a word from our sponsor. 
Alright, it's time for weekend projects. Rob, have you been playing or reading or watching something that is that is very special to you right now? Uh, so I mostly spent the week playing Hearts of Iron 4. Oh, um, okay. So I mentioned it last week. I'm now since uh so we're recording this on Thursday. Yes. I started playing the game um maybe last Monday or Tuesday. Sure. And so in the space of uh, like a week and a day, basically, I put in 60 hours. Nice. And uh, that's consumed my life. I haven't played anything <laughs> else. I haven't read anything. <laughs> I have managed to see something. Oh. I watched Snowpiercer. Oh. Now, I want to know what you think of that. I would like to know. That. I mean, it's so, it was very slick. Uh, it is yeah, like it is a cool like dystopian uh like sci-fi movie. It's the like, best Bioshock. <laughs> boy, it sure it sure is, right? Even down <laughs> even down to the like aesthetic of that train. Yeah. Uh that 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 movie is is super, super Bioshocky. Yeah. Um and it even pro- unfolds like a series of levels. Completely. Like, oh, it's time for the 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 car where the lights go out and you fight the guys with the with the masks. Yeah. Um oh it's time for the uh the schoolroom shootout. But yeah, it's it's super cool. I am still working out what I think of its ultimate like like what's that movie actually mean? Sure. Right? That's that's the that's the, that's the thing I'm sort of wrestling with, right? Because like the way the movie ends to me doesn't read remotely optimistic, which might be perfectly fair, right? Because I think the movie's kind of asking the 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 the, the dilemma at the end of the movie is whether or not this society that everything has to function like there's not like the entire system is designed uh to allocate resources a certain way and and maybe can't even accommodate changing the way things are allocated that much right like it just it, the system works the way it works um and that is what is allowing mankind to survive a disaster but it necessarily requires the exploitation and oppression of like a permanent underclass. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, it's not quite like soylent, like it's made out of people thing. Right. But, (laughs) but ultimately like that, like the, the entire idea is humanity's like stuck on this, in this Arctic catastrophe. Uh, the earth is frozen solid basically. And all of humanity is contained in this one like mega train and the train can't function if the people at the back of the train aren't getting just screwed. Yeah. Um, so the question is, at the end of the movie, uh, I think there's an argument to be made at the end of the movie, humanity's doomed. Because they just, like, at the end of the movie, uh, some stuff has gone down, and it's ambivalent whether or not the, the species is going to continue. <laughs> um. And at the end of the movie, I'm still asking myself, like, so is it possible that a society can be so exploitative and corrupt it doesn't deserve to exist, even if that means that everyone's dead? And I don't know. Yeah. I actually read the ending as, as, as very, like, the whisper of hope. Like, I don't know if it's cheesy or not, but I sort of thought, like, well, this is a pretty stark metaphor. There's a couple of like people of color who are able to escape this shitty 
you know, sort of rigid train to be in this like, yeah, maybe, maybe harsh landscape, but they've hinted at, hey, things might be warming up a little bit. I mean, it is ambivalent. It's not in any way like here's a happy ending with a bow on it. But I kind of saw that as, hey, maybe the the fucking snow and Arctic landscape is better than this this crappy train that Ed Harris built. Like maybe maybe they'll do better. Maybe they'll at least die free. You know, one of those kind of uh, somewhat wistful but happy kind of scenarios. There's a polar bear right outside. Like it's probably going to eat them. But yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that's the other thing, right? Is like, is is the movie just indulging in the trope of like the wild animal representing freedom and like a return to sort of your your natural freer roots, uh, free from the constraints of society? Uh, because if so, that is that animal is also a metaphor uh, that also functions as the most relentless hunter on the planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, like, certainly true. <laughs> like you, like you actually couldn't encounter a worse creature if you were like if you survived some sort of Arctic disaster. Like you actually couldn't encounter anything worse than a polar bear. Yeah, yeah, it's probably gonna it's probably gonna eat them. It's probably there's a chance. Them, right? There's a chance. There's there is a chance. a chance that they maybe it's well fed and it won't care. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's learned to think of humans as like oh those poor little humans. I'll just give them a hug. There's a. Maybe yeah, it's like thought. like one of those like Panzerbjorns in uh in, in the Pullman <laughs> trilogy, uh, Dark Materials, right? Where it's like like the the movie ends like minutes later, like the bear just starts talking to them, and it's it's awesome, right? Then it's a, then it's a modern Disney movie. There you go. He's gonna sing a song to them. Yeah, she's like, "I'm a polar bear." <laughs> He's gonna offer them a coke. <laughs> I like that. I bet they could go for a nice coke after their difficult day. Um. <laughs> Well, that's pretty awesome. I am also uh, enjoying a science fiction thing that's pretty weird. <laughs> I am reading uh, The Three-Body Problem by, and I, I do not want to butcher this name, uh, Shikzin Liu, C-I-Z-C-I-X-I-N-L-I-U. And I cannot find an actual like pronunciation thing here, so I apologize if I mispronounce that. Uh, but it is an excellent and very weird and very almost arcanely written uh, piece of science fiction that posits this sort of, it begins in the it, sort of the midst of the Chinese Cultural Revolution in the 60s uh, when academics are being, uh, you know, sort of ousted as being, uh, you know, anti-revolutionary. And this this young woman scientist is uh, sort of put on a project that's actually the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. A whole bunch of other stuff is happening. There's a bunch of other characters. Um, and sort of most of it takes place in the present day when there's a giant mystery surrounding what is actually a sort of a, a virtual world game, like a, a weird online game that may actually be aliens talking to us. Uh, it's fascinating. It is really a truly fascinating book. It was definitely written by an engineer and it feels like it was written by an engineer. There's a lot of science and math and uh, sort of the philosophy of science and math Mm -hmm. behind it and sort of the, the, you know, almost worshiping of the great minds that think of these problems, uh, which I find at times a little bit off-putting and at times just incredibly intellectually enriching and a lot of fun to read and very interesting to read. Uh, the prose itself, I'm not. It might be a little bit. So this is, you know, obviously it's a Chinese language novel that's been translated. There might be maybe a slight translation issue. The prose is a little bit, uh, just a tiny bit stiff in some places. But mm-hmm. I, you know, certainly I don't think the author's fault. It's just, you know, 
things need to be translated. Not everything translates super well. And, you know, the writing itself is very sort of speedy and, and fairly sparse. So it's not something that's keeping me in any way from enjoying the book. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm only about halfway through it. And I know it's actually a trilogy, uh, but I'm only about halfway through the, the first book and just really sort of enjoying it. I, I'm a big nerd for sort of, I, I'm not good at math. I'm not gifted in the natural sciences, but I am a big nerd for sort of those, those big ideas in, in sort of where math and, and technology and philosophy kind of come together. You know, the ideas about how do we figure out what science should be and what science should do for humanity. And, you know, the, the even bigger questions, the why are we here? Is there life outside of us, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff is just crack for me. I just love those sort of the big question sci-fi, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so really, really digging that so far and would highly recommend that to anyone who is curious about those kinds of things and also uh, curious about sort of Chinese culture uh, I'm learning a lot about the Chinese Cultural Revolution that I had I had absolutely no idea about. I like, barely like knew Mao's that this Cultural Revolution. Yes, yeah, okay. exactly. Um, which I just wasn't super aware of. You know, like I, obviously I know the things that I would know from history class, but that was a long time ago and not the biggest part of history class. And as a you know, dopey American, so uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. It's it's really fun for me to learn. It's really, I get excited when I'm like, oh, an opportunity to learn something and also grapple with big, big question sci-fi. So very, very highly recommended. The three body problem. Awesome. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you are enjoying the show, Please do rate us on iTunes and please do tell a friend. It is the main way that we get uh, listenership. I almost said viewership. Uh, you're probably not watching us, uh, but it means so, so much to us. It means the universe to us. And uh, yeah, please do tell friends, tell family, tell whoever you'd like to tell. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Sorry, I went off on a terrible, bad philosophy thing that made no <laughs> sense. I apologize. That was great. It was great. I really was thought like, I had like it was like Leibniz, but then I forgot I if it was Leibniz or not. I, I can't, really can't either. It's really sad. It was like a spinning <laughs> Rolodex of like philosophers, many of them German, <laughs> and just like wow, I, I, I like I can see snatches of like should I recognize? Jesus, it's, I it's know. Good. <laughs> are we are we sure it was Leibniz? <laughs> I'm like just oh my fucking god! I'm so sorry. That was the worst. Oh, it was fun. All right. All right. Bye. Take care.